All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we are going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 6 and a Psalm of Repentance. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active, that it it penetrates into our hearts. We thank you that you not only see us as we are before you in, in need of your grace, but Lord, also in need of Christ, who is the grace of God. So Lord, I, I pray as we as we look at this great text that we would not only see you in it, but Lord, that you would help us. You would help us to know you. You would help us to love you more. You would help us to treasure you and cherish you. You would help us to grow in you and by you and through you. And Lord, I I just thank you uh, for your word, that it is sufficient, that it addresses the, the problems of our hearts. And Lord, if we feel like you are far from us today, Lord, I pray that that through this text, as you will show us, you are not disinterested in us. You, you are not far from us. So Lord, help us as we look at this text. Expose our hearts. Show us where we are. And help us to be pointed to Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 6. Psalm 6 says this, To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemitha, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. Psalm 6 is is the first of what is known as the penitential psalms. That is, the psalms in which the author confesses his sins and ask the Lord to forgive his sin by the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Now, the other penitential psalms are Psalm 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. The best known of these is Psalm 51, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It was a custom in the early church to sing these psalms on Ash Wednesday. But there is a question about how to accurately classify this psalm. 
I've called it a psalm of repentance following the tradition of the early church and what I suppose to be the majority of the commentators. But as P.C. Craigie sees it, it as a prayer of sickness. And in defense of this alternate view, it's worth noting that the psalm contains no explicit confession of sin and no explicit repentance. And in this respect, it is very different from Psalm 51, which is very explicit in naming the the author, that is King David's sin, iniquity, transgression, and asking for cleansing from sin and spiritual renewal. And on the other hand, Psalm 6 does not sound like it's dealing with sickness as much as with grief over wrong done. And so we can understand the psalmist's physical problems as the outworking of his spiritual grief, but it's hard to understand the petition, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath if sickness was his only problem. Probably a sense of sin, although unspecified, is basic, and the physical afflictions flowed from it, the result of what the old writers used to call the dark night of the soul. And in fact, if you've had such a dark night of the soul, you know exactly what that phrase is. And you can really identify with King David here in our text about his feelings. There have been many people that I've come across in counseling them who have been troubled by similar depression who could say with David in verse 6 I am worn out from groaning all night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears the great English preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was so aware of this problem among the people of his congregation after World War II that he preached a series of sermons on it they're printed in spiritual depression its causes and its cure if you struggle with anxiety and depression let me let me tell you this book will help you it will it will i have gone back to it many many times multnomah press published a critical concern book which in which a baptist minister tells of his own severe depression his hospitalization his recovery it's called depression finding hope and meaning in life's darkest shadows now i don't mean to suggest by linking these books with a psalm of repentance that depression is always caused by sin depression has many causes we we can't get into all of them but since we're all sinners depression is seldomly divorced from sin in any case a sense of sin often leads to a feeling of having been abandoned by god or being chastised by him which results in depression and this seems to have been true of david at the time of writing his writing of Psalm 6. In the NIV, uh, the psalm divides this psalm into four, into four stanzas, which is right. But in terms of the content, it's best expressed in two parts. In the first, verses 1 through 7, David is in great distress. His whole person, body, mind, and spirit is in deep anguish. He senses the anger of God on him for his sin. He cannot sleep. And in the next section... In verses 8 through 10, he suddenly becomes aware of the presence of God once again and moves out of his deep depression into new faith and bold conduct. And so the best way to handle the first section is to go through it with great care, noting its chief features and asking what points of our own experience, past or present, match the author's. Now the starting point here is the psalmist's sense of God's disapproval of wrath. For he asked God not to rebuke him in anger or discipline in wrath in verse 1. 
And from that point of view uh, of what he's feeling, it matters little whether he has sinned in some striking way and so senses God's judgment on him for this sin or whether he's simply depressed by circumstances or merely feels that God is disciplining him in general. And the sense of anguish is the same. The point is he feels overwhelmed by the experience of what is happening. Have you ever felt like that? Do you feel like that today? Maybe maybe you have done something wrong and you know it. You, you've sinned against somebody. And do you know that sin, it hinders our fellowship with God? Not our security with God, but it hinders our fellowship with God. In fact, 1 John 1, 1.8 tells us very clearly that if we say we have, have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then John says something also. When he says gives that warning, he follows it, as the other apostles do, with saying something like this in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then he, then he does something even more amazing. He points us to Christ in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, that Jesus is our advocate. Now, on the other hand, you may have been overwhelmed by something that's happening to you or to others, and you don't know how to deal with it. You might be young. Your, your parents might be seemingly to be hard on you, and or they might be getting a divorce, and that's very traumatic. And you might think that all of that is your fault, and what have you done to cause this? What can I do to make it right? In that case, you're not to blame at all, but, but that does not keep you from feeling you are to blame. And you may want to say, Oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. And maybe you've suffered reversals at work. Perhaps you've even lost your job due to some unforeseen circumstance or situation. You might think, maybe I got out of the will of God somehow. Maybe maybe I wasn't reading my Bible. Maybe I wasn't going to church enough. Maybe I wasn't giving my job a high enough priority. There's dozens of maybes and what ifs and so on and so forth in situations like that and there's no easy responses to them and quite possibly what happened is not due to failures in you at all at any rate i don't know the answers any more than you do but you're still praying oh lord do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath maybe your husband left you or maybe your wife left you or and you're wondering oh god what are you doing to me what have i done Maybe you're very sick, and for this reason, your circumstances particularly parallel that of the psalmist. And you do not know whether God is punishing you for some sin or disciplining you or, or trying to develop character in you by the things you're suffering. Paul wrote in Romans 5, 3 through 4, For we know that suffering produces perseverance, produces perseverance, character, and character, hope. And that may be it, but how do you know? And what does it matter as long as you are feeling downcast as you are? All you want to know is that God should hear you and relieve your distress if that is possible. Oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath, you pray. In fact, a sense of being disproved by an angry God is bad enough, but sometimes in our depression, things seem to even be worse. What if, what if God should not even be present? Suppose he has turned away from me suppose he has withdrawn from me and this is what david is feeling in this text which he indicates by the word return in verse 4 
The NIV says turn, but this weakens the statement. What David actually says here is that God will turn back to him since he senses that God's presence has been withdrawn. Haven't you felt like that? Don't, haven't you felt that God is far from you? God is not interested, you might think, in hearing my prayers. But remember, Psalm 37 verse 4 says God is near to the brokenhearted. That means that God doesn't isn't disinterested in the brokenhearted. He's not disinterested in the midst of the stuff of our lives. The whole Bible testifies of this. In fact, the immutability of God that we see in Hebrews 13, 5 and verse 9, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so let me be clear. You might feel that God is disinterested in with you. But but don't you know that God is everywhere? At all all the time. And he has thorough knowledge of every situation, of every motivation, of every inclination, in every heart, and is there with every single person in the midst of all that they're going through all the time. Now think about that for a minute. As you think, God is disinterested in me. He's not hearing my prayer. But how do you know that God isn't hearing your prayer? And how do you know, we need to ask, how do you know that God is disinterested in you is, is it because you don't feel a warm and fuzzy feeling now let's be clear about this faith is not grounded in our i need to say this very clearly i need to say it very plainly our faith is not grounded in our feelings our faith is grounded in the authoritative reliable trustworthy clear sufficient binding word of god so, so we, we often think today that it's about my feelings. I don't feel God around me. I don't feel God helping me. I don't feel God answering my prayers. And so then we come to think that God is disinterested in us. But our faith is not grounded in a feeling. Our faith is grounded in fact. And further, our faith is grounded in an objective word, the Bible. And the Bible tells us that God is interested in us. The Bible tells us that God is all present, that he is everywhere at all and, and at the same time, that, that God knows the hairs on our head. He knows the thoughts before we think them. He knows the motivation of our hearts. So, that, so God is not disinterested in us. He's not. And furthermore, God is not not hearing our prayers. God answers prayer according to his sovereign will we don't know all of how that works and and the bible doesn't tell us in fact all the bible says is in deuteronomy 29 29 the secret things belong to the lord this is one of those secret things we we theologians we call this the hidden will of god we don't know we don't know because god has not revealed it and that's precisely the point that's what faith is but our faith is grounded in the sure and revealed will of God. That is, that is the revealed will of God. God has kept some things to himself. That is, the, that is the hidden will of God. And God has made plain. He's revealed other things to, to us in his word. We have the 66 books of the word of God that tell us who God is, his character, his attributes, the personal work of Christ, and so much more. And that, that is the foundation, the, the word of God, 
in the 66 books in the scripture that testify of Christ, they are to inform, to regulate our feelings. Let me, let me say this another way. Our feelings are very fickle, right? We know this. We can be up one minute, we can be down the next, and we can be up the next minute, we can be down the next, and maybe somewhere in between and up and down. But God is not disinterested in us. God is not up one minute, down one minute, in the middle, up and above. God is God. He is all present. He is all-knowing. He is in every time and every space simultaneously. And so that actually, that actually is the most encouraging thing to show us that God is not disinterested when we come before the throne of grace to plead our cause, to tell him about our hurts and our pains. He invites us. Hebrews 4, 14-16 are there for a reason. They invite us to come before the throne of God for a reason, to share our hurts, to share our pain. And because we have one in Jesus that is unlike us, he is perfect, he is sinless. And that is why he is the sinless, perfect, substitutionary atonement. That is that he paid the penalty in our place and for our sin. He was buried and rose again. And that is why the text in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 and Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 very clearly tell us and very clearly summon us that we have one who is tempted, one who understands everything that we're going through and yet never sinned. And that's the reason that he understands. That's the reason that he cares. And that's the very reason that's not possible. That God is not answering my prayers. Well, after speaking of such things as being abandoned by God or being disciplined by him, it may, it may seem trivial to talk about sleep, but, it, but it's not at all trivial for those who are unable to sleep because of kind, the kind of distress that the psalmist is speaking about. P.C. Craigie wrote, For most sufferers, it is the long watches of the night when silence and loneliness increase and the warmth of human companionship is absent that pain and grief reach their darkest points. One man who went through a particularly black period described himself as dragging throughout his day's work, hardly able to function, and then getting into bed at night and lying awake through the long, dark hours until the dawn came and it was time to begin the whole desperate process all over again. Nights like this are often filled with deep soul groanings and tears. Listen to what David says in our text in Psalm 6. I am worn out from groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Now, the last thing that you need in the midst of going through a time like this is to be dismissed. Can, can I tell you that I know what it's like to be dismissed in the in periods where I've gone through this? It hurts. It hurts a lot. It's painful. But it helps to remember that these words were written not by some unsuccessful or weak person naturally inclined to depression, but by King David. If anyone was ever strong or successful, it was he. And yet sometimes it would seem the strong in particular have this 
problem, Martin Luther, was given to depression, at times even doubting his own salvation or the rightness or the value of the Reformation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was likewise affected by depression. It is good to know that one is not alone in their afflictions. And this is why Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us that it's in our weakness he is made strong. It's not about us. Especially in the West, we need to hear this. We think that we are it. We are it. We can do it in our own strength. If I just go to work, I'll have enough money. If I if I just have the right house, people will think of me well, well enough for me. If I have the right if I have the right job, if I have the right car, if I whatever hobby I have, if I have that that top of the line thing, I'll, I'll be it. But Paul says the opposite of this. It's not about our strength. It's not about our it's not about our 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 possessions. It's about our weakness. Think about that for a minute. Our Savior came under the sentence of death in his first coming. He didn't come with a mighty throng of angels to take possession of this world to establish his kingdom. He came, he came under the sentence of death. He came under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that you and I justly deserve in our place and for our sin, to be buried and to rise again. Now, Jesus is coming again. But in the meantime, he, he is, even now, Paul tells us, he is the mediator of the new covenant. He is interceding, Hebrews tells us. First John 2 tells us Jesus is our advocate. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus is our high priest. And on and on we can go. The whole Jesus is with us. In our weakness, he is being made strong. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your loneliness, in the midst of your sadness. He's using those things to shape you and mold you. God hand tailors the situations of our lives. And he uses them to shape us and to mold us, like to be more like Christ in our weakness. He is made strong. Now, if you've been long in such a condition, you're going to know the feeling of utter weariness and fatigue that David describes. And he says in verse 2, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. In verse 6, I am worn out from groaning. In times like those, we feel we are too tired and, and there's too many countless things that urgently need to be done. We're too tired to get out of bed, too tired to get dressed, too worn out to go to the car, too tired to go to work, too tired to eat and to have some water, too weary to clean the house, too depressed to go to church, and people won't be, people, we might think, people aren't interested in me anyway. We're too tired to even read the Bible. We're too sluggish to pray. Perhaps you, the only thing you can do is to Pray the prayer that David utters in verse 3. How long, O Lord, how long? Spurgeon in his great treasury of David tells us this was a favorite prayer of John Calvin's. Dominu Escuqua. O Lord, how long? It was wrung from him again and again by the countless 
responsibilities and the burdens that he bore, the, the physical ailments he suffered, the dangers he faced, the misunderstandings that he endured. And yet in spite of the extremely black picture that I'm painting here, the situation was not as quite as dire and hopeless as the psalmist thought, no, nor is it as hopeless as you might think. It might be that David felt under the uh, the God's fierce disapproval and wrath. I'm, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he felt that God had hidden his face and was nowhere to be seen or found. But you see, we need to understand that God was still there and that, that he was David's God in spite of everything. Have you ever noticed how often in this psalm, even in the midst of great anguish, David calls upon the Lord five times in, <coughs> in the first four verses? That is once or more than once in every verse. And the name he uses for God here is Jehovah, which characterizes God particularly as our Redeemer or Deliverer. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. And if there is a turning point in the psalm, this is it. It's when David, whether, whether by training, by habit, by sheer discipline, called upon the Lord. Learn from David at this point. In times of victory, call upon the Lord. Praise him. In times of defeat, call upon the Lord. Ask for help. In times of temptation, call upon God. Seek deliverance. In the dark night of the soul, call upon the Lord. Request light. God is our pathway through the darkness. He is our one sure hope in life and death. He is our hope, even when we're unaware of his presence. And when we're studying the preceding psalm in, in Psalm 5, I noted that even when David is conscious of being set apart from evildoers, he appeals to God not on the basis of his own righteousness, but on the basis of the mercy of God. And it is the same here. David's plea uttered in the midst of his anguish has nothing to do with our merits. What he asks for is mercy. Be merciful to me, O Lord. And on the basis of his plea, it can be called a basis, is his need. And he expresses it in three parallel statements. I am fate, my bones are in agony, and my soul is in anguish. It is never wrong to ask for mercy on the basis of our weakness. In fact, we're told in Psalm 103, 14, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. In verse 4, the plea to God to deliver me and save me is on the same basis. It is because of your unfailing love. And the reference to the grave or shield in verse 5 parallels. It, re it reinforces the reference to the psalm's weakness in verses 2 and 5. And so throughout the psalm, it is because he is such a poor, a perishing creature that David asks God to be merciful. And now the second half of the psalm, which begins in verse 8, contains such a radical change of mood that many com commentators seem to be without any adequate explanation. There have been, they have supposed that something, perhaps even an oracle given to the psalmist by one of the priests intervenes. And this is un an unnecessary and mechanical explanation. What happens is, quite simply, that God answered David's prayer. The Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. God made himself known to David once again and restored his confidence. 
And this had immediate results. In verse 4, he asked the Lord to turn back to him. And now using the same verb, he tells his enemies to turn back. That is to leave him alone. He was on the right track already. Derek Kidner is correct when he says this sudden access of confidence found in almost every suppliant psalm is most telling evidence of an answering touch from God. Do you remember the Baptist pastor I mentioned earlier, the one who experienced such severe depression, was delivered and later wrote about it in order to help others? His name is Don Baker. After months of therapy and soul-searching, he was by himself near a lake where, where his family had a cottage. He had been praying for a long time with many tears. And here's what happened. He said, I continued to kneel by that couch long after the tears had dried and the prayer was finished. I noticed as long as I remained there that things felt different. Nothing ecstatic or noisy, nothing high-powered or sensational. I just felt different. I examined that feeling. I became aware of strength in my limbs, of objects before my eyes. I saw, I felt, I heard. What Was it possible? Was the cloud finally gone? Had my world come alive again? I stood and moved carefully at first. The feeling, the sensation, the awareness, the strength, was it real? Was, was it back to stay? I began thanking and praising God, singing and laughing. I put on my shoes and ran down the hillside. More falling than running from Arnie's cabin to where carpenters were building a new dining hall. One of my deacons was there. I shouted, him, Jerry, I'm all right. Thank you for praying. He looked bewildered and unbelieving. He needed time. But eventually he too would rejoice at the reality of what had finally come full circle. I continued to walk with the, the vigor for full the full three miles around the lake. I sang. I cried. I laughed. I prayed. I quoted scripture. I talked to the birds. I talked to the trees. To this day, I'm grateful no one saw me. I would have been shipped back towards 7E for sure. A exceptional, yes, but nevertheless, very real. It's what happens to those who turn back to God. Because he's still there, because he still cares, he's always there. Even when we may not know it, because guess what? He's the one who's really carrying us. He's carrying us. And this is why God's not disinterested in our prayers. He's not disinterested because he does care. Because the very character of God is immutable, that is unchanging. That is where we are. Hebrews 13, 5 and verse 9 very clearly tell us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The, the Bible tells us that God is present. He is everywhere present at one and the same time. Think about that. There's billions of people on the earth and God is present. Even now, as you're listening or watching this, God is present with you. He's present with every single person. That alone speaks to the fact that God is personally, personally interested in you. He created you in his image and likeness. He is interested in you, but he's also invested in you. He sent his son to bleed and to die and to rise in your place and for your sin, to be buried and to rise again. Have you personally put your faith and your trust and your confidence in Christ? Have you, have you repented and believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved? Acts 16 31 says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be saved. If you're a Christian, do you know the rich and, and steady resources that we have in the treasure of God's word and in the promise of scripture 
in Christ that testifies of Christ alone, we have an endless source, a bottomless ocean of rich resources in the Word of God. But we also, if this isn't enough, and, and, not, and it is, Christ's work is, is, is finished through His person and through His work, His death, burial, and resurrection. But we also, because of this, because of Christ, we have one another in the church. We can share our burdens. We can share our cares. We can share our struggles. But we first need to share them with Christ. Christ is the only one that can give us true peace, lasting peace. Maybe you're up at night and you're struggling with pain. Can I say to pray through that? Pray the word of God. Go to Philippians 4. Do you know that the, that the peace of God, as, a, uh, as Romans 5 says, that, that is the foundation for why you have access to God. Because Christ has, has, has died, because Christ has rose, you have access to God. And then what Paul says in, in uh, Philippians 4.8 about our access, uh, that, that because of this access to God, this, this peace is being made real in our lives. So as we remind ourselves of these truths, hey, I have access to God. I can go before him. His peace will be made real in my, in my experience, in my, in my life, as I live out my life, and as I trust God in the midst of what I'm going through. And that he is present with me. He knows me. And as you preach these truths to your heart, in those lonely times of the night, when when sadness might come, when grief might come, when your mind is quieted. Remind yourself of these things. Take your, and then take those hurt and take those pains to the, to the Lord. In the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, take it to the Lord. Remember Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. He was tempted in every respect. And he invites us, he summons us for his throne because he's sinless. He understands everything that we've gone through. He experienced the full range of human emotions in his ministry, Jesus did. And yet he never sins. And this is why we, in our struggles, in our pains, in our afflictions, in our burdens, we can take them to the Lord who knows. Who cares? He's the one who bled and died and rose for us. And even now, uh, in John 14, this is before the cross, before Gethsemane. In, that, in the midst of that great teaching in the upper room discourse in John's gospel, Jesus tells the disciples that I go to prepare a place for you. Don't you know, dear Christian, that you have one who not only pleads the merits and the treasure of his own blood on your behalf, but you have one who has gone before you to prepare a place for you, a place in heaven, a place where you will go when you die, a place where all the redeemed will go. And, and at the end of his life, Paul Paul requests, you know, his the parchments, that is, his books and his Bible and something to wear. 
But he also says something amazing in 2 Timothy 4, that he's longing for this day. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our loss, in the midst of the hardship of our days. And Paul had many of those, right? Read 2 Corinthians 10 and 11 and 12. You can read about the pain that Paul experienced in life. Beaten and scourged and all these things. Wow. And yet, 2 Timothy 4 tells us he was longing for the day. He was longing to be with his Lord. He was longing. His eyes were fixed on Jesus and on the hope of the return of Christ. And we need to not miss this. We need to not miss this. In a whole Bible perspective, and in, in, in the whole of our Christian lives, we need to not miss this. We need to not only not miss the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the centrality of that for, and the fuel that it provides for our daily lives and ministries, but we need to not lose sight that our Lord's return is imminent. We need to fix our gaze on the hope of heaven in the midst of the, the now where we experience loss and pain and grief and heartache and troubles. We need to fix our eyes on that blessed hope. We have a Savior who is not dead and gone. We have a Savior who was beaten and scourged and mocked and who suffered the death of crucifixion in our place and for our sin and he was buried and he rose again on the third day. We have a Savior who is victorious and triumphant. We do not have a defeated Savior. So may we set our eyes, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, may we set our eyes on the blessed hope of a soon and eminent return of the Lord Jesus, as Paul did in 2 Timothy 4. In the midst of our grief, in the midst of our pain, may we take our pain to our King who has saved us, the King who has known, known knows us, the King who loves us in Jesus, and this King in Jesus who is coming again for his own. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded today and instructed in your, from your word that you are a God who is not disinterested in us. You know us so well. You know our thoughts. You know the hairs on our head. You know the length of our days. You know the real condition of how it really is going in our soul even at this very minute that we are listening and watching this. Lord, may that, may that knowledge that you know, may that inform our knowing. And may we no longer think that you are disinterested in uncaring for us in the midst of our grief and loss and pain. And may we, Lord, not only remind ourselves of the truth of, of, of what you've done in your death, burial, and resurrection, but may we be reminded also of how that's to shape and to remind and to, 
to fuel our lives and maybe even fix our gaze as Paul did in 2 Timothy 4 on the, on the day of, of the return of our blessed King, on that blessed hope, on the imminent return of our Lord Jesus. And may our, may our gaze, Lord, be in the hearing now. May it be fixed on the author and finish of our faith, but may it also be fixed on that future day when you will take us to heaven and when you on that last day when you will ultimately establish your kingdom. May at all times, in the now and in the future, may our gaze be set on Christ alone. May our confidence be set in Christ alone. May our hope be set on Christ alone. Fix our gaze on you, Lord. Eyes on you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.